0: The snake has served its purpose and goes away for the most part in in Genesis. And what we see continue is is there is a problem that continues, that of sin. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. So, I figured on a weekend where we, we celebrate a particular revolution... Um, I thought it would be interesting to go to a passage, to go to the beginning of scripture that talks about another kind of revolution. Uh, I get, those are two very different revolutions, okay? Um, but, you know, as, as the Lord was just directing my thoughts through where we've been, even in Ephesians, in chapter one, going through just the glories of the gospel, it felt right in even just talking about redemption to go back to the beginning, Go back to Genesis chapter 3 when God extended a, a promise to humankind that he would save them one day. Um, and so I, I just speaking of Americans in, in general, um, we are people that are being used to being promised things um, by lots of people that we vote for, right? Um, and then potentially not receiving them, right? Right? And primarily, right, the the ones that we know of are are mostly from presidential candidates promise many things to do as soon as they get into office. And um, some of those promises they keep, and some of those promises they don't. Sometimes it's intended, and sometimes it may not even be intended that they don't. Um, But many presidents, even just over the years, have broken promises that they've run on. Um, I have a few here. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when he was campaigning campaigned on solving the energy crisis, uh, but his speeches, about converse, uh, his speeches about conservation and attempts to add solar panels to the roof of the White House weren't quite good enough. He was unable to really get support for a gas tax, and the energy problem really only worsened during his presidency. Uh, this is according to The Atlantic. Uh, Ronald Reagan promised to make a constitutional amendment allowing school prayer during his campaign. And although he proposed this amendment in 1982, it still really never went anywhere. Um, George H.W. Bush famously promised in 1988, read my lips, no new taxes, only to sign a bill raising taxes during his first and only term. George W. Bush promised to change the tone in D.C., privatize social security and reduce government spending, none of which he really succeeded with. Barack Obama, PolitiFact, was able to track a, a lot about 533 of Obama's promises that he made and found that about 48% of them he managed to keep while he broke the rest. And so this is something that's, that we're used to, right? And not, not, just, not just with elected officials, but, but even just in our everyday lives. Um, used to having promises made that aren't quite kept, Um, sometimes not even through the fault of the person who made the promise in the first place. But uh, when when I was researching some of these, because unfortunately, I I mean, I was alive for George W. Bush and Barack Obama, but I wasn't alive for some of these other ones, so I just had to look them up on the internet, okay? Um, But there were some others that really intrigued me that dealt with war and even getting into war. Woodrow Wilson um, one re-election in 1916 with a slogan, he kept us out of war only to enter World War I a year later. Lyndon B. Johnson promised in 1964, we are not about to send American boys 9 or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. And during his presidency, the U.S. entered the Vietnam War and Johnson did not seek re-election. Richard Nixon, in 1968, claimed to have a secret plan to end the war and promised to find a way to peace with honor in Vietnam. But American troops were not withdrawn until 1973, a little more than a year before Nixon resigned. Um, We're used to promises being made, but not necessarily being kept. Um, And in our passage today, And we're going to look at a promise from God will be on display for us to see. In which he promises to actually begin a war and to end it in the same sentence. And what we will find is that although it was a very ancient promise, God kept that promise. Even after thousands of years and generations of people had come and gone, but this was all part of his glorious plan in keeping his promise. We have been going through these spiritual blessings of God in Ephesians chapter 1, and today I want us to look at an ancient promise from the beginning of time, from the beginning of our story as human beings, that God has kept and that has a significant impact on us today. So before we read our passage, I just wanted to kind of catch us up a little bit, give us some background as to what's been going on. And I know probably a lot of us are very familiar with what, ha- what goes on in the beginning chapters of Genesis. It's where good Bible reading plans start really strong, and then you hit Leviticus, and you know the, that Bible reading usually tends to die occasionally. So very many people are very familiar with Genesis 1 through 3. Um, But I just wanted to remind us, again, get us in gear of of where we're at when we come to verse 15 in chapter 3. So this this book, really, the Pentateuch, all, all five, was written to Israelites who were in the wilderness about to pass over the Jordan River into the promised land. So this is truth that God wanted them to know as they were entering this promised land that would form their identity that would form who they are and why they were doing what they're doing. And so when you go through Genesis chapter 1 through 3 really this these three chapters form the beginnings of human history, our origins, the order of creation and the majesty of God on display as he creates. And so we know what happens when God creates everything in chapter 1 And then in chapter 2, we get a zoomed-in focus of God creating man and woman and setting them up in the institution of marriage and giving them a job and giving them commands to obey. And in chapter 3 is where everything takes a turn for the worse. We see the serpent come onto the scene and tempts Eve by questioning, did God really say questioning the authority of God, questioning the goodness of God, like he was maybe holding something back. And with that deception, Eve takes of the fruit and eats it and gives to her husband Adam with her and he chooses to eat that fruit that God had commanded him not to eat of. Rebelling and revolting against God. And so God's presence comes and and Adam and Eve, immediately something has changed. And so they run and they hide from the presence of God, but God comes and he confronts Adam and Eve. And as we get into more of chapter three, God questions them of what has happened, what has gone on. Not because God doesn't know, but because he wants them to point it out. And so blame is shifted from Adam to Eve and from Eve to the serpent. And so when we get down to verse 14, God begins by dealing with the serpent first, who had tempted Eve, who had deceived Eve, and he curses the serpent. And immediately following that curse, he pronounces uh, war and, and a promise in verse 15. So our passage is taken from God's direct address to the serpent here, that is who he's speaking to, and before he addresses the woman. And so what I'd like to do, I'd I'd like to read from verse 8 down through verse 15 for us, if you'll follow along with me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. An ancient promise by God, immediately following the curse of the serpent, what we see here today, really our, our main idea to take, to take something away from our passage is this, that God's promise ought to empower his people. God's promise empowers his people. So within this ancient promise that is essentially spoken to the serpent, however, it, it most likely is within earshot of Adam and Eve, there are really four parts to this pronouncement and this promise that take place in verse 15 we can break them up into four pieces really four parts the first part has this immediate impact on the serpent and on adam and, and on eve while the following three parts are really predictive they are god showing the serpent and showing adam and eve for telling what will happen and so God is, honestly, he's, he's telling it like it is, and then he's going to tell it like it will be in the future. And what's going to happen? So the first part that we get to, when we look at verse, for, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the establishment of a war. The establishment of a war. God pronounces a Warlike state of enmity or hostility between the snake and the woman. Um, this pronouncement of, of war, in order to really understand our first statement that we have here, we need to understand what this word enmity really means. Okay. It's uh, only used about a handful of times, actually, in the Old Testament. And in its basic sense, it means a state of hostility. Or you could say an informal feeling of hostility. Maybe if there's not something that's formally written out of, of hostility, but maybe just even an internal, informal feeling of that. We could say it's, it's a deep-seated hatred. It's actually an emotion that, that motivates war, that motivates murder. That's where we see the context of this word in other passages in our Old Testament. If you go to Numbers chapter 35... Verse 21 and 22, the, the context here is that there is judgment, There are, there is penalties that are being assigned to those who have committed murder. It's taking place in the, the idea of cities of refuge that God is setting up. And so in, the, in this context of judgment and penalties to those who have committed murder, it says this, verse 19 actually, Numbers 35, 19, the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. This enmity is behind an emotion of of committing murder, of of such deep-seated hatred to then take the life of someone else. Um... We see that in Ezekiel chapter 25. Again, the context in Ezekiel is God's judgment is being placed on the Philistines, and that's being prophesied of what's going to take place. And so, in this prophecy and judgment on the Philistines, really the question is why? Ezekiel 25, verse 15. It says, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines have acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Karathites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. This word enmity is used in other places of Scripture in a, as, as kind of a, a deep-seated hatred that motivates murder, that motivates war on people. The Philistines wanted to war against the Israelites. And so this emotion that comes out is what is enmity. It's this hostility. It's this hatred and so what we have here in our passage is that God is the one who puts enmity, this state of hostility between the serpent and between the woman. This meaning of God saying I will put enmity there is, is to mean to set or to place something, to ordain something or to cause something to occur. So here, God is causing this state of hostility to be in the lives of the serpent and the woman. This relationship is one now of war, is one now of hatred and hostility towards each other. And you would say, why would God do this? Why would he pronounce a war on the serpent? Keep in mind obviously our our context here, because I think sometimes maybe we can see this as, well, was was it fair to Adam and Eve for God to just declare war? And they're the ones who are now being involved in this. But this follows, this verse 15, follows the curse against the serpent. God's attention is on the serpent. God has not moved on to the woman and the man yet. And although this war will affect mankind, their choice to sin has already put them in this hopeless situation. So this pronouncement of war is not really to their their detriment or to their disadvantage, but actually to their advantage as we're going to find out. They're already in a place of hopelessness and so God here is actually stepping in. We know God's nature in who he is to execute perfect justice in his righteousness. God cannot turn a blind eye to disobedience or to temptation. He punishes it in its good and just timing. This is who God is. And so it makes sense why God would then deal with the deceit of this serpent here. God deals with the serpent's role in the fall, its ultimate defeat, before turning his attention towards then the sinful human beings. Essentially, what God is doing here is he's making a very clear distinction between the serpent and the woman. He's marking two sides is what he's doing here. Um, Making a a line in the sand, maybe you you could say. Dividing the woman and and the man who would be included in that as well with the serpent on the other side. And God marks these two sides off and in doing so, stands with one side. He chooses to stand with humanity to declare his actions to pronounce war against the serpent to fight for his creation Fight for his created humanity. You could say that what God is doing here is God is the one who begins the war and he will be the one to finish it as well. This is not something that just happens. God has planned this from the very beginning. God set war upon the deceitful serpent because in beginning that war, he knew he would be the one that to finish it. So God places this hostility between the serpent and between the woman, marking off the two sides and then standing with the woman, standing with humanity. And so the next words that we get from God are interesting because Our our first part in verse 15 really just has that immediate impact. It's between the serpent and between the woman. But what God does next begins to get, it is predictive. And God extends this war to their respective offspring. The key word, obviously, in this phrase is offspring. What does this mean? not only really significant for just our passage here in Genesis 3.15, but it's significant for the rest of the Bible. This word, this theme will get drawn out and woven through the rest of Scripture of an offspring. And so what, what does offspring mean? There's probably your, if you have a different translation, it might say seed, might say children, maybe descendants. Um, a great term other than offspring to use here would be seed because really of its ambiguous number. So a little, little grammar lesson, right? Um, we have things called collective nouns, um, which would mean the, you could say the church. We have collective nouns that speak of a group of something um, that are made up of individuals, but we refer to them as one thing. And so seed here or offspring is is a good translation because really it's it could refer to something singular or it could refer to something plural an individual seed or an individual offspring or or multiple generations of of offspring or seed This word both times it's it's used here in our in the second part here verse 15 between your offspring and her offspring is a singular contract construct meaning that what god is talking about is he's talking about one line or one seed or one offspring one heritage one lineage so not multiple lineages or not multiple um uh, lines that would come he's talking about one in particular could be referring to a collective or it really could be referring to an individual or possibly even both. There's a lot of speculation as to what exactly is the offspring here because essentially it, it is a little cryptic of what God is doing. So the, re, the main question then is as we look at this hostility, this condition of, of hatred and war, between the serpent and the woman, and now it is extended to their respective offspring, is is who is God talking about here? Who is the offspring of the serpent, and who is the offspring of the woman? And as we look to answer that question, there are really two points that begin to, to come into focus a little bit, that sometimes maybe we can get lost in one is really the true nature of the serpent really be, be, starts becoming clear here. It comes into focus a little bit more, and it will in the next sentence as well. Because what, what we see in Genesis 3 is a serpent, a snake, enters the scene. One that talks, which is odd. Um, and then It continues going, it deceives the woman, and now it's being cursed. And we see the curse in verse 14. But is the author of Genesis simply just referring to a snake? Or is there perhaps a shadow of something else behind it? Is it representative of something? Because it seems like there's a little bit more as God talks about the snake's offspring As he will eventually say that the offspring of the woman will bruise your head. Generations later, we don't know, but it seems like there is something more to the serpent. As we even look through the rest of of Genesis here, we see the disappearance of the snake is not so much mentioned but there's a continuation of something else that was seemed like the real issue, the real problem behind maybe what even this serpent represented. When you look, you turn a page over to Genesis chapter 4, and you look at verse 5, Adam and Eve have two sons, two seeds, and one's offering is accepted, one's is not. And so God speaks to Cain, the the one whose offering was not accepted in verse 5, and he says, but for Cain and his offering, God, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's not the snake, the serpent is crouching at the door, sin. The snake has served its purpose and goes away for the most part in, in Genesis. And what we see continue is there, is there is a problem that continues, that of sin. You look into the New Testament and, and John interprets this in, in 1 John chapter 3 in verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It seems like there's something more here than just a snake or just a serpent. It's sin. You look at just a biblical interpretation uh, standpoint. We read Revelation chapter 12 that talks about a great red dragon. And even in that, in verse 9, mentions the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Or maybe even just from a theological standpoint, we go to the, the, the teaching of, of spiritual warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lays out armor that believers ought to put on because of why? Because of the darts of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, the reality here, as uh, again, the, the passage begins to focus us in that this snake is something else. There's a shadow behind it of something else that it represents. Because this clearly is not just a war of snakes and humans. This isn't just the author of Genesis declaring you know, humankind's hatred for snakes. I'm sure there's a lot of you that dislike snakes in this room today. Okay? But that would seem really simple. That would seem really not what, especially the Israelites going into the promised land needed to know that, hey, watch out. There's a bunch of snakes out there and you're having war on the snakes. Seems like there's something more to this. So the reality of this hostility, if the snake is more than just a snake, then who's its offspring? Are we talking just about little snakes, or are we talking about somebody else? This isn't just a history lesson on our origin story for maybe why we dislike snakes. But in a sense, in a sense God lays out two family lines that we see here. The serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring... If the serpent is more than just a snake, but he is the evil one, he's the devil and Satan, Revelation 12, Ephesians chapter 6, he is the spiritual forces that we wrestle against, then the New Testament describes a group of people that are considered the children of this evil one. You could say the offspring or the descendants or the children, the family, the line of the evil one. We go to Matthew chapter thirteen and Jesus describes two groups of people. Matthew chapter thirteen, verse twenty four. Parable of the weeds. This is a little bit lengthier, so follow along with me as I read, starting verse 24. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers. You Go down to verse 36. Jesus had continued to teach, but the disciples come back to him a little bit later and kind of want to know, Jesus, what did you mean by that? In verse 36, he says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are... Um, seeds that are sown these good seeds that are sown and says there are those that the devil has sown they're the sons of the evil one and then there are these other sons that are sons of the kingdom that are sons of the son of man we go to john chapter 8 and john there's there's a discussion of jesus with the jews about their practice of sin and following after their true father and John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to these Jews and he says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. John speaks of children of the evil one in 1 John chapter 3 as well, verse 8, "'Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, "'for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. "'The reason the Son of God appeared "'was to destroy the works of the devil. "'No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, "'for God's seed abides in him, "'and he cannot keep on sinning "'because he has been born of God. "'By this it is evident who are the children of God "'and who are the children of the devil.'" Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Paul talks of this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So it seems like the the sons of the devil, those of the evil one, are those who practice unrighteousness, are those who live in darkness, are those who live according to their flesh, those who may even falsely claim to follow God, but are truly weeds. All those who are enemies of God are those who are of the evil one. And so, a simple point is, this is you and me. This is all of us. Based on, on Jesus and his disciples' interpretation of the children of the devil, this is where we were. This is who we were. Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead, you were destined for judgment, you were following after the prince of the power of the air. You practiced unrighteousness, you lived in darkness. So that becomes frightening in our passage in Genesis 3:15. Because if the children, if the offspring of, of the serpent are all of those who are enemies of God, then that means that we were too, and when God pronounced war on the serpent, there was a pronouncement of war on us as the offspring of the serpent. But what's amazing is God doesn't end there. God gives another statement. And in order to really better understand who then falls under the woman's offspring, who are we talking about there, we need to continue reading on. When we continue reading, God's pronouncement of war turns into a creation of a promise to win victory over the serpent through a singular offspring of the woman. So we then come to the creation of a promise in verse 15, And God says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God immediately follows this pronouncement of war, this hostility. He follows it up with a promise for when that war will end. He gives hope in the midst of utter darkness when the serpent will be destroyed and a victor, a champion of the woman's offspring will rise up to lead in that victory and bruise the head of the serpent. So what does this word bruise mean? This is the action of, of this promise of the one who is to come. It's used about really four times in our Old Testament and two of the times is, it's used right here in our, our passage in Genesis 3.15. It's used in other places in Job chapter 9, verse 17, and in Psalm 139, verse 11. And in those cases, both times that word is used, it's used as an attack of almost to be smothered by something. In the case of Job, it's by a storm. Job nine, 9 seventeen says, for he crushes me, it's our word here, with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Or in Psalm 139, it's a smothering by darkness. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, is our word, and the light about me be night. So literally this, this word means to grip hard, intensely, to compress. And so, bruise works. I think in some translations, what, what may even work more, more helpful for us as English readers is that the object of the thing being gripped hard helps us understand how this word is used. So when you have the object of a head that is gripped hard and pressed in, it makes sense to use a word like crush. Whereas when you use the object of a heel, it's, it's easy to mean something of like a strike or a wound on the heel. But this is what this offspring is going to do. And it's interesting that God here says it's a singular seed of the offspring. He shall bruise your head. So maybe if, if there was any misunderstanding or any ambiguity, which there is, and there's still a lot of debate and an understanding on who really is the offspring of the woman here, I think what's helpful is just looking at our immediate context. The very next word is he. There is one seed, and that's the focus here. There's one offspring, there's one seed that's going to complete the actions that follow. And this theme of one seed is woven through the rest of Genesis and the Pentateuch and is woven into the rest of scripture. Uh, my wife and I had amazing opportunity to go to Italy at one point um, for about, I think about nine or 10 days or something like that. And one of the amazing things we got to do was in Rome, we got to go to the Vatican, um, which was weird as a Christian going in the Vatican and, and seeing all of that. Um, but you walk through and there are so many old things in the Vatican. And you walk through and there's so many hallways that the tour guides take you through and one of the hallways is just a hallway that is filled with these old tapestries of different colors and different scenes of just threads being all woven together to create a picture of something. We don't I mean, maybe some of you do. I don't have a tapestry hanging in my house. But what's happening, what's going to happen here with this seed, with this offspring who's going to bruise the head of the serpent, is that one thread begins to get woven all throughout the rest of Scripture. And we see a beautiful theme that is presented of a seed who is to come. In Genesis 4.25, again, Adam and Eve coming out of the garden, they have two sons, two seeds, and so kind of as a reader, as you're reading through Genesis, you, you have the thought, is, is this the seed that was promised? But it's not clearly, as we see. And so Adam and Eve have another son in chapter four twenty-five, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Their hope is that there's this offspring that's coming, this offspring that's coming. Genesis 22, verse 18. After Abraham's test, this offspring is promised to him, and there's other places in which this covenant takes place. But in Genesis 22:18, God says, "I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring." as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That covenant gets passed on to Isaac in Genesis 26.4 where God says to Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That gets passed on to Jacob from God. Genesis twenty-eight fourteen. your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Throughout the rest of Genesis, you follow this thread of this offspring that was promised back in Genesis three three fifteen that was to come. And the hope here is that this offspring, this champion, this victor, will finally deliver mankind from the darkness and the oppression of the serpent and of sin. You keep going through Scripture. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, God's covenant with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. The seed to come will be a king. First Chronicles 17, 11, again, it's God's covenant with David from, but from within a book that has a little bit of a broader scope. 1 Chronicles 17, 11, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his home. Isaiah, the prophets begin to weave this thread of offspring through. In verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 7, the sign of the deliverer. When Judah is in distress, what will be the sign of the deliverer? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The name of this deliverer, God saves, God with us. Micah 5, verse 2 it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel woven through the rest of Scripture is so significant. This deliverer, this one to come who would crush the head of the serpent. And so when you get to the New Testament, they look back at this theme and they see this thread that's been woven through and guess who they point it to? They point it to Christ. They point it to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 is just an entire genealogy going from Abraham all the way through David all the way through Jesus this seed Matthew wants us to understand this Jesus is the one we've been waiting for this is the one who was to come from David this is the one who was promised to Abraham and in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 Paul references our text in Galatians 3 315 and he says but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. No longer children of the evil one. No longer children in darkness. No longer children enslaved to our sin. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be the champion, to be the victor, and to keep his promise that he made in Genesis 3:15. With this action, the offspring delivers death to all that this serpent represents, death, sin, darkness, evil. Then those of the offspring of the serpent are redeemed. They are made adopted as sons of God. We've been looking at this in Ephesians chapter 1. That we are adopted as believers, brought into God's family. That we are redeemed from sin through the victory of Christ. But that victory costs something. And God's promise here is not finished. There was a cost for this promise. This great victory over the serpent would come at a great cost. And as with many victories in war, freedom and peace comes at the price of blood. And so it was for this offering offspring that was promised to come. And so we see that God says that the serpent will bruise his heel. So why use the heel here? Well, this, this is a word image here, when it's combined with the offspring's crushing of the serpent's head, that power, that leadership, that authority, and it's to display that as as the head is being crushed, the heel is being struck as well. And so the word image that, that comes to mind here is obviously of, of one stepping on the head of the serpent, while the serpent strikes the heel of the victor, of the champion, of the, of the offspring that was to come. Again, just showing us that this is the end. It's crushed. And both of these bruisings happen simultaneously. So why suffer? Why couldn't this come at just a great victory? Why would God allow for the offspring to be struck When the author of Hebrews picks up his pen in chapter 2, he gives us the reason why. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The suffering of the offspring was necessary for the satisfaction of God's wrath that we see in verse 17 here of Hebrews chapter 2. Without a blood sacrifice, God's wrath could not be appeased. And so there was a great cost that had to be paid. And not only that, but the hope that we have in the midst of temptation, in the midst of suffering in this life, can come because our Savior suffered. We know His suffering in his death, So through the suffering of Jesus, this offspring to come, believers, followers of him are free from the power of sin, the, the, the power of death that has gripped us as children of the evil one. And God has given us power through his son to become his children and to obey him as it was meant to be, all the way back here in Genesis. So two very specific applications for us as we close. For those of us who are believers, for those of us as well who are unbelievers, what does this passage have to do with us? It means that we can trust God. Trust God to keep his promises. That all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so if God can keep his promises, Promise when it comes to Christ and from delivering us from our sin, He can surely keep the other promises that He's made throughout His Word. He will surely keep you. He will surely guard you and protect you as a believer. Because nothing else in this world is reliable. We have nothing else that we can cling to and hope to, to trust and to be able to make it through this life other than the promises of God that He has made. God never fails. I know myself in how hard it is to keep a promise, and sometimes that's even just for a day. But God can keep a promise throughout all of time, exactly the way that he planned it. And so for those of you who may not be followers of Christ that are here this morning, trust in God. Run to him If you're tired of the darkness and your sin, your flesh, the evil of this world, then run to him who has set you free. Run to him who is the victor, who has crushed the serpent, who has crushed death and sin. With no power, run to him to be rescued from your judgment, the wrath that awaits The God from Genesis to Revelation is worth following and worth trusting with your life. And for our church today, would we live like the serpent's head has been crushed? Live like Jesus has actually had a victory? The victory? And yes, there is still a time right now where the devil has power, he's the prince of the power of the air but he has no power over those who follow christ we need to live with more of a revelation mindset that the end is sealed it's closed it's done god has gained the victory through this offspring that was promised to come there is no more to be done and one day that serpent that that devil will be crushed forever To live with a revelation mindset. Too often we give up the fight when we are the ones who ought to be celebrating the victory already. Every struggle that we face, whether it's at work or in our marriage or in raising our kids or in trying to reach out to our community or the difficult storms that come into our life can be faced through the power of the one who was to come and who has come, and his name is Jesus. The grave, the evil one's sin, no longer have power over us who have believed and become brothers and sisters of Christ. So live in that power. Live in the promise that God has kept for generations. I think we'd see amazing things happen.